All right, welcome to another episode of The Bible Guys. My name is Rick Kleinert. I'm joined here with Jerry. Uh, Jer- Jerry, we were talking a little bit about uh, the day before we hit record. We've, we both have kind of had some uh, fun days here. Yeah, it's been a challenging day. It's actually been a challenging day back to Friday. Oh. And fortunately, we said what we needed to say before you hit record. Right, right, because we're totally depraved. We discovered that last yes. Friday. And so you guys who are listening to this are getting the, um, we just, we got it all out and now we're hitting record. Yep. That's good. So we've experienced the tea and tulip. Exactly. So today, part of our, I guess I'd say episode two of this series is of the tulip, um, is talking about unconditional election. So to get your, get our listeners up to speed, maybe they're jumping in. Um, they haven't been a part of us for a while. We've decided to go through the five points typically what they're called, the five points of Calvinism. Um, many listeners could say, well, just there's different thoughts on that. Of these views, because we've been getting these questions an awful lot, we've gotten them as teachers, we've gotten them as uh, part of the podcast. Um, sometimes when people find out we're pastors, they ask us these questions, because mm. it's just one of those things they want to know about. Last um, episode, we talked about total depravity. This week, we talk about the U, which is unconditional election. And maybe we should start to help our listeners who may not be up to speed with some definitions and what this means. Yeah, so when we talk about unconditional election, that's basically the view of election that says that God chose certain individuals to be saved, and that choice on God's part was not due to anything in the individuals chosen. Thus, it is unconditional there is nothing in the person. Yeah, we would we would say it, it. The idea of unconditional election goes against the concept of some people call foresight that God saw into the future, saw that you would choose to accept His Son, and then thereby chose you, which would now be conditional election. If yeah, you look at it that way. yeah. His choice is conditioned on you choosing, right? Which is absolutely nonsensical. In, and a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, and we're going to just give theories. We're going to give people's views. Uh, we may land our plane, but we definitely going to land our plane um, where what this doctrine, um, if it's in Scripture, and that's why you want to listen to the rest of the podcast. Um, where do we go with it? You know, why is it important? So let's get right into it with some different views. Can we start with there? Some how how some people see this idea of unconditional election? Yeah, there have been a lot of ideas on this, and um, one view is what I just call the ostrich view. Uh, these are people that ignore it, bury their head in the sand. Now, before anybody gets upset, I am quite aware that ostriches really don't do that. Yeah. But just go with the analogy, yeah. okay? We're just going to call it that. I think people would get the idea. And if somebody emails that saying, well, you know, technically an ostrich, I will yeah. respond with a lot of sarcasm. So Good. Showing my depravity. Please don't email that. They would deserve it. And I've run into a lot of people that really take this position. That's not an official name of a view. I'm just calling it that. Right. But there are a lot of people that say, well, this just calls, causes controversy and debate. So let's just kind of ignore it which really is an attack on Scripture. Yeah. How dare we ignore something that God has seen fit to include in the Bible? Yeah, this is where um, I, I'll have to confess, early on in my faith, when I was in the Bible college and this became the, was it the dorm room debates? Yes. Um, this was number one on the list right after, because I went to a, you know, a Baptist college where it was like that and 
what was then called contemporary Christian music, which is <laughs> right. not even in existence. Um, but this debate came up, and so I, I took the ostrich route. I'm like, man, you know, is it that big of a deal? Let's just talk about Jesus. Because I was a new believer, but then you're right. I had to willfully ignore places of Scripture, which we're going to talk about later, that, that do talk about this. Yeah, another view is, I just call it the blame it on John Calvin view, and that is that people have the idea that John Calvin basically invented this doctrine, and so let's blame it on him. If he hadn't come along, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Right, and you know what? It, there's a lot of things that get blamed on John Calvin, and I'm going to go ahead and say this on, on live. Um, I'm a Calvin fan. I like John Calvin. Uh, here's why I like John Calvin. He was a thus says the Word of God guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to mess with people. This is my favorite when people say, well, I, I don't want to go to that church because it's a Calvinist church. I like to say, well, where's the pulpit? They're like, what do you mean? Is it in the, I'll say, well, is it, is it to the side? They're like, no, it's right up front. All right, you go to a Calvinist church because that was John Calvin's idea. John Calvin said, hey, the pulpit needs to be up front because the centrality is the word of God, not yes. on the ornate glass, uh, not on the whatever. It's on the word of God. But uh, again, John Calvin has been blamed for a lot of things. I heard a an article, I read an article about a year or two ago where somebody was trying to challenge the the penal substitutionary, substitutionary view of the atonement. Sorry, words are hard. And uh, they said, well, this didn't come up until Calvin. Like, wait, no, no, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Um, I don't really think you can say Calvin created penal substitutionary atonement. Some take a corporate view where... Christ is the elect one, and then if we're saved, we're joined to Christ, therefore we are elect. Who's our big proponent of that one? Carl Bart. Carl Bart. Yeah. And for you people interested in spelling and pronunciation, his name is spelled B-A-R-T-H, but it sure. is pronounced Bart. Yeah, and I uh, that was a big deal. There's a lot of people in the evangelical world that I've talked to, one, they, they hold to that view. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a big popular view right now. Yeah, and then there are a lot in the uh, grace movement. I can't yep. remember the exact title of that movement. Mm-hmm. But they argue that election is not to salvation, but it is election to works. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned at the beginning, the foresight view is very common, that God looked ahead in time. He saw would, who would accept him, who would reject him. Those who would accept him, they become the elect. And then the final view, of course, is the one in the, the tulip view unconditional election, which we've already defined. Okay, so let's talk this through, and we, we just gave some views, and we made some comments about it, but let's let's look at what Scripture says, because we want to be like Calvin. We want to be a thus says the Word of God guy. What does Scripture say in regards to this concept of unconditional election? It's actually all over the Bible, and I always like to start in the Old Testament with Abraham. And when you go back to Abraham, and I'm not going to quibble over the Abram, Abraham name, but, you know, I'm just going to say Abraham. Yeah, save your emails. Because it's, it's easier to say. But Abraham, according to Joshua 24, when God called him, he was a pagan idolater. He was worshiping foreign gods. He was not seeking after the true God. And there is no indication whatsoever in the text that he was about to do so. And yet God chose him anyway, um, nothing to do with him. There's also an interesting passage in that regard in Nehemiah 9, of all places, and in verse 7, where the text says, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram. 
and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave us him the name of Abraham. So you have the clear choosing of Abraham, and then you go on and God chose the, the physical descendants from Abraham. God chose the nation of Israel. It is preposterous to think that God chose what would be the nation of Israel because of anything in them. I mean, their whole history has been one of running from God, of defying God. And in fact, in um, Deuteronomy 7, I don't have the text in front of me, but in Deuteronomy 7, Moses deals with the fact that God did not choose Israel because they were greater, because they were more powerful, but he chose them because he set his love on them. God did not choose Egypt or Assyria or Japan. In fact, he wasn't even working in those civilizations uh, during the 2,000 years of the Old Testament era. Rather, he chose the nation of Israel, and nations, of course, are made up of people. So that is the group with whom God was working. And then later on, Paul will even argue in Romans 9 that there was a remnant within the nation that God chose. So, you know, those are just some examples from the Old Testament of God's unconditional election. Right. And so, and and you mentioned it, but clear, I mean, you see this all the way through the Old Testament, especially when God is condemning the people. He says, listen, don't, I didn't choose you because you're awesome. You're stiff-necked, stubborn people. I chose you, and the key, for my great name. Exactly right. So what you see in the Old Testament's choosing of Israel is the idea that this was not something that that he did because of something that they are inherently they inherently have, but rather his own glory. And then that kind of carries into because most of our listeners are listening to this and saying, Well, you've had recent podcasts where you've talked about that Israel's different from the church. So where do we see this in the New Testament? Yeah, again, several passages and we have to be selective because of the length of the podcast. But one of the classic ones is in Ephesians 1, yep. where Paul writes that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And um, several things I think we should comment there. Let me just lay out the argument, and you can maybe jump in well, on, I was gonna read on the, that verse. I'll read the text here. It says, uh, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. Yeah, in that passage, Paul is explaining the role of each member of the Godhead in our salvation. Yeah. And so right off the bat, we know that this is what God is doing. And in that verse, that particular verse about election you read, God is the author of the choosing. Um, that word choose there occurs, I think, over 20 times in the New Testament. And in this particular case, it um, is prefixed with a preposition, meaning that he picked, he chose, he chose out of humanity. And Paul goes on to say that it is before the foundation of the world. And that word foundation, whenever it's followed by the word world in the New Testament, there might be one exception. But in every case, it's talking about the, the creation, the foundation of all things. And so this is tantamount to saying that God chose us uh, pre-temporally before any of, of us ever came into existence. 
very similar to what Paul argues in Romans 9 when he talks about Jacob and Esau. Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated or rejected? And he indicates that this was before either one had done good or evil. To make the point, the choice is not based on them. And that is identical to what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1. Which really removes the foresight argument that I think you mentioned the last one, that, okay, God God knew what you would do and chose you based on what he knew what, you, what he knew you would do. And so it just shoots that theory. Yeah, and, and the basis on which the, the election is made, according to Paul, is it's made in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's made for the good pleasure of his will. It's made to the praise of the glory of his grace. And... If we really understand grace, in my opinion, one has to hold to unconditional election because grace is not grace if there is a reason for God to move. So this is an election of grace, Paul will later say in Romans. So, you know, Ephesians 1, just one text where I think this is clear. And um, one thing interesting to me is Paul doesn't fight us on this. He just states it. Mm-hmm. And um, so whether we like it or not, whether it seems fair or not, which I'd like to comment on in a moment, um, you know, that's what the apostle says. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because let's, let's, I'm hearing this, and if I'm a listener to the podcast, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I've got some objections to this idea. Something doesn't set right. So let's talk about some of the objections that some might have for unconditional election. Well, I think one of the uh, most often cited is this idea that it isn't fair. And I find it interesting, I I always ask people this, did you know that Paul actually dealt with that objection directly? Hmm. And almost always they say, no, I didn't. Well, in Romans 9, when Paul is discussing election, when he gets down to verse 14 of the chapter, having gone through the whole Jacob and Esau thing. He says, what shall we say then? Paul is anticipating an objection now. And he says, is there unrighteousness with God? And then the second text, and then I'll come back to these, is in verse 19, later on in the argument. He says, right before this, Paul says, he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. You will say then to me, Why does he yet find fault for who has resisted his will? And the point I would draw from this is if Paul were arguing for a foresight view of election, these objections never would have been raised. Those objections are only raised with an unconditional view. And Paul doesn't backtrack and say, whoa, you misunderstood me. (laughs) I didn't mean to say that. Rather, he goes on to say, Nay, but, O man, who are you to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me this way, etc.? So those two objections of a lack of fairness are the result of properly understanding the doctrine. So whenever anybody uses that objection with me, I say, Good, you've got it. Mm -hmm. And that's Paul's point in Romans 9. It also also, um, argues against Bart's view, that that election is the elected Christ rather than the elected individual. Yeah. Because there would be no need for this argument if it was just the elected Christ and those who are in Christ are now the elect. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, what's another objection that people might have to this one? 
Oh, I think one of the, another one that often comes is um, it destroys man's will, mm-hmm. which I think we'll talk about when we get to the eye. Yeah, but that's a, a later episode. And then another objection is, well, why pray? Why evangelize? Right. Why do anything? Yeah. If God has decreed this, I've heard the argument, and that was I'm glad you brought that last one up. Why the argument is, well, if this is true, then evangelism, missions, why do it? Mm-hmm. Which I find ironic because one of the best books on missions that I've read is written by John Piper, who himself would hold to uh, maybe a little bit, he would personally hold stronger than I would. I'm not maybe that's true. Maybe not you would on election, um, where um, I would hold to. We can do this right now if we can, but I would hold to a different view of election than he would in the sense of where he would go. Um, but he says his book, um, Let the Nations Be Glad, is yes. one of the greatest books on missions. It is. Excellent. About why we should go and share the gospel. And from his argument, he would say, we don't know who the elect are, and salvation comes to the elect through faith, just like it says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing the hearing of the Lord of God. So we've got to share the Word of God with people. Um, otherwise, the elect won't be saved. So that's his argument. So I'm like, well, that that really kind of shoots the theory down that we don't need to evangelize or do missions, because here's one of a proponent from it or of it who holds to the need to do these things. Yeah, that's a good point because, as you said, God hasn't shown us the list, so we don't know who those people are. Mm-hmm. And you can go back in church history. You know, not only contemporaries like Piper, but you can go back in church history and some of the greatest theologians and evangelists and missionaries all held to this position, understanding that God ordains the means as well as the end. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, God has made his election, but he has also ordained how those individuals will be brought to faith, and it is our privilege to be involved with God in, in preaching and praying things that we should do passionately. Mm-hmm. Uh, because God has told us to do so. Yep. Okay, so that takes us to this question, because we talked about it last week. Everything, this kind of exists on a spectrum. We can't just say, oh, you are you believe in unconditional election, so you're pigeonholed right here. No, there's some nuance. So what are, let's do this, what are some of the nuances of unconditional election? It, okay, let's say, I, let's say I believe it. Aren't there some differences in the level, or I guess I should say the degree in which I hold to this or that view. What I mean is, like, I'll give mine for example. Um, right now, where I'm at, I hold to, and I think this is all tied into the word predestination as well. What you know, what he's elected, you know, the idea of him predestining. I currently hold to just single predestination. That's what I can clearly see from Scripture, Ephesians chapter one. Clearly, see that I can't ignore that. That's one of those passages where I if. I have to hold on. I have to see it because it says it right there that my that the salvation of the elect was chosen for the foundational world. He chose to save me individually. Yeah, that that's a really difficult question. I I tend to the other position mm-hmm. that if God made an election of certain to be saved, then there was a determination on His part to make a decree regarding the others. Um. That is not the historic um, position, and I will acknowledge that. Uh, usually in the creeds it's stated that God chose to pass by right. those who are not elect. Um, I'm just not—that just seems like a—I don't know. If he passed by them, he determined 
to pass by them. Yeah. But but that's a that's a very difficult question. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure there's a lot in scripture I could go to for my position because those who hold the other view would always make the observation that when God's election is talked about, it's it's usually talked about in the sense that God chose out of. That is, you have this mass of fallen humanity, and now he's choosing to rescue certain of those. Um, so that's a hard call mm-hmm. and a, diff- a difficult doctrine, no question about it. Well, the point being made is, again, there's that nuance. Yeah. Um, that you can hold to what the Scripture teaches about election without going further than you want to go or you further than you feel Scripture goes. And I think that's mm-hmm. the key there. So many times we can be super dogmatic and say, this is definitely what Scripture yeah. says. Eh, even Calvin in his institutes wrestles with this. He, do, he does, and he, and he says, if I can't find Scripture for I'll just put my hand over my mouth. Exactly, which I think we all should take some advice from a lot of times. <laughs> yes, very, very much. Being and, silent. And that's, that's why, you know, I'm trying to be careful. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads to another objection, if I can throw it out. Yeah. A lot of people I've talked to say, well, you just hold this because it's a logical system. So you take a certain view of total depravity. Well, it's logical to hold to unconditional election, therefore. It is logical, but I don't hold doctrines because they're logical. There are some doctrines I hold that are illogical. Mm-hmm. For the life of me, I cannot understand why God has to send people to an eternal hell. I can't logically explain the Trinity or the hypostatic union. Why do I hold them then? Well, I think they're taught in Scripture. Yeah. So it's the same with unconditional election. I think I can make a very strong case biblically that this position is accurate. That's why I hold it. Okay, I, I agree with you. I love and I love how you said it that way. That how logic is not just about this conversation. It's about a lot of different things, especially in Scripture. But we hold to it because Scripture says it, and that's where we get to. So, so here's where we want to kind of land our plane here. What do we do with this? Because sometimes people see this, like you said earlier, the ostrich, the guy who holds that view says, you know what, this is not big of a deal. Let's just talk about Jesus and let's ignore this. Why is it a big deal to talk about? Um, If I may, I would like to start with it. When you see this discussed in Scripture, Paul, when Paul's speaking about it specifically, he's always talking to churches. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to be, and they're usually in passages where he is encouraging the brothers and sisters there. They're, they're maybe going through persecution like they were in Thessalonians when he says, hey, you've been, you were, you were chosen by God to receive this by faith, you know, uses that term. Um, or, or they're struggling with something going on, and he wants to encourage them. This is meant to be an encouraging doctrine. Yes. It's meant to be a, in a world where our worth or our value is judged by what we bring to the table. We can we have a, a resting place where when I come to my heavenly Father, it is not anything I bring to the table. He is he did not get a lottery draft pick when he saved me. What I I come to when when I'm before my heavenly Father, it is all based on His unconditional love for me, not on what I bring again to the table. That gives me such comfort that he knew me before the foundation of the world, that he chose to love me before the foundation of the world. 
I may be second place to everybody else on the planet, but I'm not to him. And that gives me an amazing amount of comfort. And it's supposed to do that. And that's why Paul writes it in the text he writes it in. Yeah, that's that's one of the key points as well. I was going to quote uh, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem about that, but I won't do I won't do that oh, right now. Oh, you have to now. It's, it's so eloquent. You got to do it. I mean, you just dropped that on us. Maybe another time. I don't know if I I could actually get through it. But basically, okay. she's I believe she's addressing her husband okay. and saying, you know, don't just love me for love's sake, and don't love me for certain things that amuse you about me, because those things may change someday, and we change. But the nice thing is, no matter what I am today, or I was yesterday, or I will be tomorrow. God's choice is independent of me. And that, man, that gives me all the peace in the world. Yeah. And it, it seems in time like we chose God. But as we look behind the scenes and start to study Scripture, like that, that poem, The Hound of Heaven, I sought the Lord, but afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me, and he goes on. You're quite a renaissance man today in this podcast. Oh, well, you know, it's just kind of... You're just, dropping it, man. It's awesome. <laughs> just kind of flowing out. It's good. Um, I, had, I had another reason. Okay. And that is the um, the doxological reason. Luther, when he was debating Erasmus, and Luther wrote his uh, Bondage of the Will, he... Um, he addresses Erasmus, and he says um, it's neither idle nor superfluous to know who does what in salvation. And what Luther was getting at was this matters as much as the glory of God matters. Who does what, how much does each do, etc. And if we went back to the Ephesians 1 text, Paul says three times it's to the praise of the glory of of his grace. And at the end of the day, I owe everything to him. And um, it's it's not that, and we don't have anything to boast in no. because it's unconditional. Yeah. So God didn't choose us because of anything we are. Uh, for his own purposes, he chose us. So the doxological reason, and then as you mentioned, that, that worth reason and the security, um, those are just incredible things to really grasp. And then Paul takes it, because in those same passages where Paul is describing our state with God as unconditionally elect, he tells us to love one another, to love members of the church, other elect members, so that we are to love in that same way. Not, not what they bring to the table, not how they better your life, not how they better the church's life, but rather because of who they are in Christ. That motivates, and that's something sometimes we forget the love of God that God has for people, that kind of love, should motivate our our hearts to love them too, because if God loves them that way, then we should do our best with our fallen nature to love in the same way. And that's something I think it's it's key to, that we, we love because he first loved us, and that's how it works. All right, well, that wraps up our discussion on unconditional election. Uh, next week, we'll talk about the one, I think probably the one that's going to cause the mo- maybe we'll have the most listeners. Maybe they're just kind of waiting around for this one. Talking about the L in limited atonement. What is the extent of the atonement? Who was atoned for? Is it a complete atonement? There's a lot going on in that passage. We're going to go through that. Uh, that might be a two-parter, but we might try to get in as one. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to email us. Unless it was about um, 
you know, Jerry's views, the ostrich, and you want to just, just kind of critique us on what we know about animals, we don't want to hear those. But if you have a question you want us to tackle in an upcoming episode, please email us at bobbleguyspodcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Instagram and at Twitter with the same username, at bobbleguyspod. For Jerry Hollinger, I'm Rick Kleinard. We'll see you next time.